Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm away on vacation this week, or holiday as we call it in the UK, so I wanted to share a podcast episode that I recorded recently with Barry Schreier from Giant Health on their Giant Thinking Podcast. I really hope you enjoy it, and as always, please email us anytime at podcast at sonogenetics.com with any guest recommendations or feedback that you have. If you like the podcast, we would really, really appreciate it if you could share it with a friend or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. This helps other people find the podcast and uh, hear about us. So thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today we have Patrick Short. Hi, Patrick. How are you? Great. Uh, really great to be here. Thanks so much. Excellent. Nice to see you, and we appreciate your valuable time. So Patrick, we're talking about big challenges in healthcare and big issues in society that we're setting out to address by way of innovation. What's an example of a really big challenge in healthcare, and what are you guys involved in relating to that? Yeah, great. Um, well, first of all, great to be here. I'm a big fan of your conferences and, and podcasts. I've listened to quite a few episodes, so glad to be part of this one. Quite a few challenges in healthcare. I think one of the biggest and one where we're focused on, part of it is how new medicines get into the hand of patients and how do we make it faster, more cost-effective. Your listeners are probably familiar with the fact that it takes 10 to 15 years for a new discovery to make its way into actually impacting patients and the billions of dollars it costs. So what we're really interested in is how can we accelerate that timeline for genetic and personalized medicines in particular. And there's obviously not just one silver bullet to this problem, but quite a few different things we can do and excited to talk more about that. Excellent. Well, these are obviously huge challenges. And if it takes a decade or longer from the point in time that you discover a new drug to the point in time that clinicians are prescribing it and it's helping patients, I suppose that's quite an obvious challenge for us in this rapidly moving world and with viruses mutating and adapting as they do, for example. So what is this idea of personalized medicine? We hear this phrase quite a lot, but maybe some of our listeners aren't so technical or they're a little bit unclear about that. Can you give us a little simple definition? Is that an uncontroversial subject, personalized medicine? Yes, it is. People debate the terms personalized, precision. They mean different things to different people. For me, sure. personalized medicine is using data to better tailor a treatment to an individual. So it's, it's really that simple. Genetics is one of the most powerful new technologies that's being applied to personalized medicine. And that's what I've been really interested in and involved from research side and now starting Sonogenetics for the last 10 or 15 years. But fundamentally, personalized medicine is, is using data to tailor treatments more effectively, going from a one-size-fits-all approach to yes. the ultimate aim of truly individualized. And it doesn't need to be a drug necessarily. It can also be an algorithm that tells you to do something differently or, or that warns you early that you may be at risk for something. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Well, that's the helpful sample summary. Thank you very much for that. So tell us about the work that you guys are doing and what are some of your recent accomplishments, please? Yeah, so we started the company about three and a half years ago. Before that, I was a researcher working on large-scale rare disease genetics projects. And one of the things that struck me from a research side is, and actually it was a really specific example of this, there was a study that came out around genetic superheroes. Right. Um, these were people who were found in large research biobanks that had or appeared to have a disease or a, a gene variant that should cause a rare and devastating disease. But according to the medical records and other information they had, these people were perfectly healthy. Oh, So it's a very tantalizing prospect that there were people who carried these, what should have caused very rare severe disease, but actually were protected right. for some reason. Right. The, the Achilles heel of this study, though, was that these individuals couldn't be recontacted because the infrastructure didn't exist. And in some cases, the consent didn't exist. So these people were 
potentially out there. And I say potentially because they're never able to really determine whether they were true superheroes or there was something else going on. Yeah. But that the data silos and the fact that these actually down to the individual level, these people weren't recontactable meant that there was a huge missed opportunity. And I think researchers, whether you're in academia or industry, especially in genetics, where data sets can be really expensive still to generate, sure. often end up forming their hypotheses around the data that they have. And it's almost baked into what we do that we can't go and recontact individuals, whether it's for to gather new data to ask, hey, does this person actually not have the disease? Do they have a maybe just a, a less severe subtype of the disease that wasn't picked up in their medical record? So this was the problem that we faced as researchers. On the flip side, as participants in research, it's the flip side of the same problem. So if you get enrolled into a large research program, but you're never recontacted about a trial, that might be relevant to you, for example, that's a missed opportunity to give real value to patients in particular with rare diseases. So yes. in a nutshell, we, we developed an online platform that helps patients who take part in research to have a much better online and at-home experience. And for the researchers who are either conducting clinical trials or running large-scale research programs to be able to manage that relationship in terms of long-term recontact, new sample collection, notifying right. patients about research opportunities for them much more effectively. And we've been at it now for about three and a half years. Nice. Excellent. Well, congratulations on what you guys have accomplished so far. I can imagine there's a very long list of big challenges to get to where you guys are already. On the surface, though, it seems quite simple, doesn't it? Let's keep in touch with all the people that have participated in trials. Let's um, incentivize them to keep in touch with us. Let's keep their, their contact information fresh. Let's make sure that we are successfully bringing together these two extremely important audiences patients and anybody willing to participate in trials on the one hand, and the pharma businesses or the, uh, what do you call them, CROs, contract research organizations, who on the other hand want to conduct these trials. Why is all this so difficult? Why wasn't all this sorted 10 years ago? Yeah, well, what's tricky here is a couple things. First, on the patient or participant facing side, once you actually dig into the problem, it's clear that it's not as simple as we just need a website with a contact form and a couple surveys, and then off we go. We need to think right. about Things like electronic consent, how do we keep information, contact details up to date over time as people move, change emails, phone numbers. There's right. also the actual delivery of value back to patients and participants. So simply asking people to do surveys repeatedly doesn't really, you know, doing it online versus doing it on paper doesn't really fundamentally change the, the experience for participants. So it's things like how do we tell people the impact they've had in research okay. years, months or years after they've taken part of it? How do we give people back personalized information based on an updated profile so that it's actually really something um, that delivers value to participants in the short, medium, and long term? So actually, when you dig into that product side of things, of what does it look like for a participant, There's, it's not one single thing. It's a thousand small things that yes. um, people need to reinvent. And, and on the research side, it's a scale challenge. So no, as you'll know, and, and your listeners will know, clinical trials in particular are, have incredibly detailed recruitment criteria and, and inclusion exclusion criteria. So yes. you really need to be able to reach a vast number of people with the right data in order to find those needles in a haystack that are relevant and interested and eligible to take part in a particular trial. So mm -hmm. bringing these two sides together kind of sounds simple, like you say on paper, but what you really need is a yes. large number of organizations that are all using the same framework or infrastructure to do recontact. And then and only then can the pharma, biotech, academic researchers who are running trials and other research can reach these audiences more effectively. Sure. Um, 
And so it's a, it's a classic kind of critical mass challenge. I understand. Yeah. No, that's very helpful. So, for example, your clients are pharma businesses. Is that right? Yes, we mostly work with pharma, mid-sized, small, small mid-sized biotech, some large pharma, as well as academic researchers, anyone who's running uh, either recontact-based genetic studies. So they're interested right. in identifying people that carry a certain genotype to understand more about either the, the disease that it may influence or the protection yes. that they get from this genetic superheroes problem or clinical trials that are focused on genetics. Okay. Just for the sake of the discussion, to help our listeners understand this in more detail, a big global pharma business, you know, market capitalization, $50 billion, loads of cash, many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of employees around the world. What are their challenges? Why don't they do this themselves? Why can't they just sort this with their vast manpower resources, their cash, their, their global reach, their legacy of being in business for many, many decades? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me take, take you through one specific example and can illustrate what the problem is and how we solve it, but also how other, al other alternative ways of solving it. So right. if, we take a, if we take a common disease like Alzheimer's, there are now many trials that are looking for people with Alzheimer's disease and a very specific genotype. So APOE4 as, as one example, okay. that puts people at higher risk of Alzheimer's, but also their genetically targeted, potential genetically targeted therapies for right. this. The way that trials have traditionally been run is a pharma company outsources to a CRO, and the CRO will then set up sites, work with sites all around the world. A typical phase three trial will have maybe 10 countries recruiting, and those sites then reach out to patients who are already in their database or near them geographically right. to recruit for these studies. Okay. But as, as the criteria have gotten rarer and rarer, this site-based model has started to become more and more challenging and expensive because you have fewer people at each site, you need to open more and more locations. So where we come into the picture is two pieces. The first is we have a database and a partner network that includes people who've already been genetically tested and want to take part in trials. So okay. we can help that clinical trial to identify people who are near its sites that already exist and who want to take part in a trial to get them involved. Sure. Um, and then the second piece is to actually do genetic testing of people who have never been genetically tested before, who again are eligible and interested to take part in the trial. Right. And what's hard to replicate here is that there's a, this is the software element that I mentioned earlier of the patient facing application that people are using to screen, see if they're interested in taking part in the trial, the database and partner network that we've built already that you know, they need to go ahead and rebuild. And also the logistics element of actually doing the at-home saliva-based testing. So what we found is yeah. some, most organizations are, are really interested to work with, you know, with, with someone else who can, who can take this off their plate, frankly. And as okay. you'll know, starting a new business, it's harder in the beginning. When we were four people, five people, it's much harder for us to tell a large pharma that so they can't do what we do. But as we've grown and we've grown our database platform logistics, it, it starts to become more and more clear why yes. this is something that you, you wouldn't want to do yourself. I understand. That makes a lot of sense to me. But I suppose, are there challenges within these very large international organizations? I remember when um, he was the chairman of Google, Eric Schmidt used to always say, look, we're too large to be innovative. Innovation isn't natural in a very, very large organization with huge groups of people working in extremely large offices. So are there lessons learned? You mentioned that uh, at the beginning of your journey with this business, obviously, if you were only a handful of people and not a, a known provider, was it difficult for you to do business with a big global company? Were they worried about your credibility? What are the lessons learned for all of our listeners out there who are actually working in these big, large pharma companies? 
Definitely. For large pharma companies in particular, um, you have to be really patient because the number of people you need to speak to is, is usually in the multiple hands rather than just a single hand. And there are processes that are in place for a good reason to identify, screen, and onboard vendors. What we found in the beginning was the best customers for us were actually the small and mid-sized biotechs that were oh. still running very innovative, and, and in some cases, the most innovative personalized medicine trials, but they were, in terms of organization size, 50 people, 100 people, 200 people. Uh, so they were a little bit easier to navigate and actually articulate yes. our value. Um, as we've grown, we've started to work with more large pharma companies as well and take the time we need to navigate those organizations. But I do think every company in this space has to approach it a little bit differently. But for us, it made sense to start with companies that were a little bit smaller, easier to navigate, prove our value, generate case studies, and then we can start to move into the large pharma, you know, much more challenging enterprise enterprise navigation challenge there. It, it, exactly. And for those largest businesses, do you see any change over the past few years? Are they becoming more or not necessarily open to engaging with very small businesses? How do they go about with engaging with small businesses? What's been most successful for us is the large pharmas that have a dedicated genomics or genetics or personalized medicine unit in particular have been the best groups for us to initially work with because not every company is structured this way, but often they're cross-cutting units that sit across the therapy-focused disease areas. So if a drug company is working in cardiovascular disease and respiratory disease and cancer and a number of different things, often they'll have actually a genetics unit that sits cross-functionally across all of those. So so for us, rather than having to go to build independent relationships with each of the disease-focused vertical parts of the organization, we can actually go and build a relationship with the genetics part of the organization that can then help us to identify where are the other parts of the organization that would be the best fit for us. So it's, you know, it's really, I think, just about actually solving a genuine problem for someone and then taking sure. the time to, to navigate your way through the organization. And some, some pharma companies make it easier than others to actually navigate. Uh, and, and it's mentioned, yeah, I won't ask you to name the um, easier ones to do business with. But um, yeah, I've never worked in a large pharma. So I, I also it's hard for me to tell them how they could or should do it better. And I have a lot of empathy for them just because I, they get people coming in all the time to say, hey, we've, we're going to solve this problem for you. So I think you also need to be a little bit humble and make sure that you, know, you take the time to actually really understand whether they see the problem the same way you do. Yes, or not. yes, exactly. And how about yourself personally? We'd love to hear a little more about your journey, if you don't mind. How did you start off? Did you originally study science or business? And what did you do which led you to this business? Yes, I originally studied math and biology. I actually went into university wanting to study math and economics, but okay. I, I, I did a in business actually, but I had a series of unfortunate intro economics classes that maybe decided I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that anymore. And so I switched uh -huh. to biology and math. Um, but I've kind of come back around to do more more business and entrepreneurship. I've had my family is as long as I've known it, I've been in a family of entrepreneurs. My mom and dad run a small business, and I've got lots of family members who are entrepreneurial. So I've always been interested in this side of things. But I, I, yeah. I, I studied math and biology. I came over from the US to the UK to do my PhD in rare disease, focused on large scale genetic testing programs in project called the Deciphering Developmental Disorders Project, and then spent a little time working on the 100,000 Genomes Project here in the UK. Wow. And I've, I've always been really interested in, um, in rare disease. It is speaking to one of the, one of the particular challenges earlier in, in getting drugs to market. There's 7,000 
rare diseases, but less than 200 approved therapies. So lots is changing there from a technology and regulatory perspective. But I've always had an interest in rare disease um, mm -hmm. and, and personalized medicine more generally, how it can take common diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's that we discussed earlier. And actually, yes. those are getting broken down into much, much rarer diseases. So I think there's a long term trend here, which is that basically everything becomes rarer as we move towards more and more personalized medicine. I suppose, yes, by definition, if it's perfectly personalized, if it's a N equals one, then it's so rare as one person. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And I think that you're already starting to see that in some ultra rare diseases companies are designing and patient groups are leading N of one type therapies. I think that is the future. It'll probably take us a really long time to, I think it's asymptotic. Eventually we will sure. end up there. But until then, it's just a continuous fragmenting of what we understand to be a disease today. In five years, it will be fragmented into five subtypes and 25 subtypes and, and so on until, as you say, it really is down to the individual. Mm -hmm. Understood. Let's hear a little more about your business. Are you the founder of it? And uh, how did you get it off the ground? Have you had to do any fundraising and other fun things in that entrepreneurial journey? Yes. I, so I'm one of the three co-founders. I, I founded the company with Will Jones and Charlotte Guzzo, who uh, I met actually while I was a student. So we we're all doing our PhDs at Cambridge in Will was doing machine learning and Charlotte and I were doing genomics. And we actually bonded over a shared view of the problems that we discussed earlier around the participant experience as well yes. as the firsthand research experience and how it could be improved. Yeah. And we, we actually started by building a really rough prototype of what we imagined the platform could be while we were still PhD students. So we were oh, nice. uh, testing our idea with our research friends and family. We learned a lot in the early stages, got a lot of good, helpful feedback. As I was finishing my PhD, we raised our first round of funding. So basically went, went straight full-time into the company after finishing my PhD. Our, our first round of investors were SeedCamp, which is a London-based seed fund, a really excellent angel investor, a guy named Paul Forster, who founded Indeed, which is a job-sharing marketplace. Uh, the University of Cambridge has a seed fund that invested as well. We've had a number of different angel investors join. About a year ago, we raised our second round of funding, which was a seed round uh, a little more than a year ago, now about 18 months from episode one, which is a seed fund in London. And, and we are getting ready to raise a series A in the next couple of months. So as you'll know, it, it takes capital, especially in healthcare, to be able to take a really long-term view on, on how we can take a new drug and help the developers get it through trials and can it be one year instead of five? Can it be one month instead yes. of one year? What, to, what, where can we push this? And I think COVID has showed us that there are there are ways to push this process to be much more take a lot less time. But yes. how far how far we can push that time will only tell. Exactly. Do you have a rough estimate there? Do you have some kind of forecast? Are you guys saying, look, you know, historically it's taken this amount of time, but if everybody plugs into our system, it's going to we're going to gain the following improvements. Yes, we aim to at least help our customers go 5x faster. It depends on the trial, the disease, what of it course. is that we can do. But fundamentally, one of the things that takes the longest is running clinical trials and, and the recruitment process in particular. The forecasts are almost always very optimistic. And then reality right. hits and time takes longer, cost balloon. There's a tragedy to this in that there's a lot of people who actually really want to take part in trials and either don't hear about them the criteria are incredibly strict, so they can't oh, take part. So there's, right. there's a huge a huge number of challenges to solve there that I think can help us continue to shave time off. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's extremely ambitious, I think, but rightly so, to have a goal of a 5x improvement in that timetable. I can imagine the impact of that would be 
absolutely profound. Going back to your business and going from um, being a student directly to a co-founder and dealing with investors, what lessons have you learned or what would you like to share with uh, fellow entrepreneurs and people that are at the beginning of their journey launching new businesses when it comes to investors? That's one area we'd love to hear from you about. And another is the idea of launching a new business and the challenges of engaging with, for example, yeah, clients and uh, big businesses that are scratching their heads saying, who are these who are these young people I've never heard of and what are they doing? Yeah, I, I think that doing a PhD teaches you some things that are really helpful starting a startup and other things that are not so helpful. So <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it teaches you to be really rigorous and analytical in your thinking and, and sure. obviously teaches you deep domain expertise. but it you know, doesn't teach you things like how do you do sales? How do you um, how do you hire a team? How do you manage a team? Um, sure. How do you work together towards a common vision? It's often can be somewhat of a team sport in academia, but more often you're spending most of your time working, you know, working on something yourself. In terms of how people make the decision, I, I remember when I was thinking as a PhD student what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to go into starting a company or doing a postdoc or something like that. I, I think the the walls are so porous now between academics and industry that people can make the decision like I did to go and try and start a company. And it doesn't mean that the door's shut for them to go back. And the, the decision oh, that I, yeah, what, what I felt at the at the very beginning was I was really excited about what we were building, Bill and Charlotte and I at Sano. I thought it had a lot of potential. And if it doesn't work, then I'll try something again. I'll, you know, I'll, the door's not going to close, right? No, for any any future options. So mm. it's it's worth thinking about where you're going to have the biggest impact, where you're going to learn the most, um, and where you're going to enjoy you know doing what you do every day. And what I what really appealed to me about this route was I felt like I could have a really big impact and do something that made a big difference. I, yes. And I also felt like I could learn a lot, so I'd be doing things that that I hadn't done before. Yeah, and 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 yeah, change change things up a little bit. So for me, it was. Uh, it felt like the right decision. Nice. Excellent. It's also, of course, very good to hear that you don't feel like um, you have locked yourself in. I can imagine there's a lot of fear amongst people regarding, you know, should they take that plunge? Should they consider launching a new business with all of the inherent risks that are attached to that? And are they digging a hole for themselves in doing that? But uh, very good to hear that from your perspective. The answer is no. Obviously, we hope you're going to be extremely successful with your venture. And whether it is successful or not, it's good to hear that maybe you could go back to academia. The door isn't permanently closed there in terms of the relationship with that community. Yeah. And, and although I would say that uh, at some point you make a decision and that that point for me was when we raised our first external round of funding. So there's a, yes. there's a period of time where you've got latitude and can figure out whether you enjoy doing it or want to do something else. But for me, I pretty quickly realized that I wanted to spend the next 10, 20, 30 years, whatever it took working on this company and solving this problem. So yes. at some point you do have to decide, are, am I going to go down this track or not? But I think people don't realize how you've got a lot of flexibility early in your career. In particular, if what we were doing wasn't working, then sure. you know, you've, got, you've got all sorts of options. But once it starts working and you're really excited about it, then I think it's worth you know, going all in for 10, 15 years, whatever it takes to make it successful. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Has the uh, journey changed since you guys launched the business? There's all sorts of trendy words out there coming out of Silicon Valley, like pivoting and getting to plan B and so forth and so on. Are you guys doing now what you set out to do when you launched the business? We are largely with some variation. So I, I don't think no plan survives contact with, uh, <laughs> with, with reality, I think. Where for us, we've always been really clear on what the problem is that we're trying to solve. And 
I think we've been a little bit less prescriptive about exactly what the solution is. We had a really good, strong idea of what we thought the solution looked like, but okay. we, we knew that, especially in healthcare, there's so much complexity that mm. it's it's very hard to to be overly prescriptive about this is exactly what we're going to build, whether people want it or not. We, we took the other approach to say, there's this big problem that we want to solve, which is how do we help accelerate the transition to personalized medicine? How do we get personalized medicine to be not a buzzword, but to be the reality. Yep. And how we solve, there's a, there's a lot of ways to solve that problem. And we focused on really the, this bringing together different parts of the ecosystem, patients, organizations like biobanks and patient registries that use our software nice. and biotech pharma companies. But yep. exactly what it looks like within each of those sectors is very, I think you can do it yourself a disservice if you're overly prescriptive about saying this is precisely what we're going to build and not listening to to your customers and, and partners about what exactly. they actually want. Yes, yeah, exactly. No, I think that's uh, absolutely true. And it's a good point you're making there. So uh, what about the future? Where will you guys be maybe in five years? Do you have quite a clear roadmap and are you on target for that? Yes, the future is always uncertain, but what we're, we're most focused on is how can we go from the traction that we've got here in the UK and in the yes. US and yeah. go globally. So as I mentioned earlier, most um, phase three clinical trials run in 10 plus countries. It's something we've been investing in a lot is taking our infrastructure and enabling our infrastructure to go globally. And there's a regulatory aspect to that, but there's also things like internationalization, new languages. So that, that's one axis for the future that we're really focused on. And the yeah. second is increasing the number of diseases that, we, that we're working in and you know, working with patients partners like biobanks and registries and pharma companies. We focused historically on about 10 diseases where there was a really clear market for personalized medicines that were being developed. And there was a really clear need for better access to genetic testing and, and genetic data for trial recruitment. We're, yep. we're now starting to expand the number of diseases that we're focused in so, so that we can grow as a company and that we can, you know, we can help more patients, partners, customers along the way. Nice. Excellent. And, uh, as far as the direction of the business, the expansion and so forth, is fundraising a necessity? And are your current investors uh, supporting you regarding upcoming rounds? What are some challenges or issues there? We've got a great set of existing investors. One of the, I mean, one of the pieces of advice I can give to anyone who's thinking about fundraising is really focus on getting high quality investors that you like to work with and that you think yep. can bring something to the table that's that's much more than funding. And that's definitely been the case with all of our investors. So we're getting a huge amount of support there. Episode one, who is our who led our seed round, is a is a seed focused fund. So part of what they bring to the table is to help companies like us get ready to raise the Series A and and expand. For our business, it's possible to do what we do without having to raise money, but it, it would be very slow and would prevent us from doing what we want to do on on any kind of reasonable time frame. So to sure. us, it's um it, you know it's it's to help us move more quickly and in particular growing the R and D team to develop the product and also our our commercial team to go out and find more customers and partners to work with is, is nice. really the key ingredients for us right now. Yes. Yeah. What's your business model and is that evolving? What's the relationship between that and your investors, for example? Yeah. So we charge the pharma and biotech companies that we work with to help to accelerate recruitment in their studies. So it's okay. really very simple. They pay us to launch their study on our online platform and they pay us while the study's running, and then we have volume or performance-based feeds around the genetic testing and analysis portions of what we do. So we we don't charge patients to use the platform. It's completely free to find, take okay. part in, in research and get access to testing. And really the 
core customer for us is the pharma biotech company. One thing that's quite different about this, if I could compare us to someone like 23andMe, for example, who was right. one of the companies that we looked at a lot in the early days in, in terms of how we were counterpositioned and, and different from what they were doing is, so 23andMe has built a very large database through e-commerce sales and yes. is now, now transitioning into a pharma company. So they have 30, 30 or so assets that they're taking into clinical trials. The, the approach we've taken is, is almost the inverse of that. So we're building a platform that allows every patient or participant to have a 23andMe-like experience in research right. and every pharma and biotech company to run a research project that takes advantage of the genetic data analysis that a company like that has built. So where they're vertical and using the data set that they've built to develop their own drugs, yes. we're trying to bring that tool set to to the industry as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yes, that's the strategy really in a nutshell. And where that's different from us, from 23andMe is that we have, we have a partner network. So we work with patient organizations, we work with large scale biobanks. And if those patient organizations, biobanks want to use our platform, right. then patients who are already in their research project or registry can get access to the studies that are running on our platform. So rather than needing to buy a test to be in the database. It's, uh, it's, it's free for patients, free for our partners, and they get access to those research projects with a revenue share split if they take part in the project. Yes. Very cool. Again, I can imagine there's a lot of challenges because there's a lot of moving parts here. Would you say that that's one of the main things that you guys are developing skill or value in? Is that part of it? The fact that you've got all these large-scale biobanks the patient organizations and so forth, the COVID clinics you've mentioned and so forth. That in the sub itself, I suppose, is this correct? That's a, that's a big part of the value you're giving to your clients, which isn't easily accomplished overnight. Yes, that's right. There's a, a very simple framework that I kind of like, which is investor at interest in Horowitz in the US called Competer Connect. So in healthcare, you can either compete with an existing incumbent and say, we want to be a telemedicine company that displaces, right. or, or you can connect groups that we're not previously otherwise connected, and, and we're very much in the connect category. What is challenging about a business like that in our business is, as you said before, we have we have a couple different parts that we need to focus on. And for us, it's three in particular, the patients or participants who want to get access to potentially life-changing research to the platform, yes. biobanks and patient registries, and pharma biotech. So with those three groups comes some complexity, but exactly to your point, that's also where we think some of the value is to, nice. to our customers and partners is that nobody else then needs to build that infrastructure that connects those three pieces in the future. They can, uh, you know, they can work with us and don't have to go through the pain and struggles that we've gone through the past three years or so. I don't know what you're talking about, pain and struggles. I can't imagine there was any whatsoever. But um, <laughs> no, joking aside, Patrick, this is very, very interesting. We're going to wrap up in a few minutes, if that's okay with you. To be honest, I wish we were sitting in a pub garden and we could have a pint, and I'd love to continue this discussion for at least another hour or two, and uh, absolutely love to uh, meet your colleagues, so maybe we could have another episode relating to this uh, in a few months. Until then, like I said, I'm sorry to say we are running out of time, so we'll wrap up over the next few minutes. We are a global community of people around the world, people in global pharma businesses, medtech hardware, software management consultants, people working in public health, investors, startups. Do you have any asks of the community? Are you guys looking to recruit people or any partnerships or ambitions? What would you like to share with the community and how can everybody in the giant health global community support the important and interesting and admirably successful work that you guys are doing? Yes, great. You've, you've given me a, an opportunity here, so I'm definitely going to take it. A couple things. The first is uh, we're hiring. 
In particular, we have a role open for senior bioinformatician and very recently for business development roles. So wow. you can visit our website if anyone is interested. It's always, uh, you know, people are the most important thing to us. Keeps the, keeps the wheels moving. Yeah. Let me, um, I might apply for the job. What's the, what's the website address? Please, yeah, it's sano, sanogenetics.com, S-A-N-O-genetics.com. We'd, uh, we'd love to see your application for, for either role. Can't pronounce the first job title, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's not a requirement. Okay. Um, the, the, the only other two things that I'd love to plug is we're, we've recently launched a study looking at the genetics of long COVID. So right. in particular, anyone who is themselves affected by long COVID or is interested in supporting that research as a partner sure. or otherwise, we're planning to genetically test around 2,000 people that have long COVID, so very chronic long-term symptoms to try to understand what the genetic role, if any, there is in long COVID. And, and really the long-term goal of this is can we help to identify biological pathways that, that could point towards therapies. So, yes. um, and, and then the final point is just anyone in large, mid-sized, small pharma biotech that are planning a clinical trial or natural history study, would love to talk to you and, and see if there's a way that we could help to uh, accelerate your, your recruitment through our at-home genetic testing or, or database. Excellent. Excellent, Patrick. Well, for sure, we know as a certainty there are um, well over 20,000 people in the giant global community working in pharma and in life sciences more broadly. And I hope that our listeners find this interesting. And um, going back to the long COVID study, how do people apply for that? Or let's say, for example, if I know somebody who might be interested, how do I direct them to this? So if they just visit our website, sanogenetics.com, there's a blue bar across the top that will tell anyone with long COVID that they should uh, click and read more and learn to take part. It's, it's very simple. You don't have to leave home at all. It's a questionnaire that asks about how you were affected, whether you knew that you had it from PCR or whether you were um, unsure. It's not a requirement to take part. Right. information about how people are affected for how long. And then the final step is you'll get a one of our at-home saliva-based tests that's delivered to you and takes about five minutes to do. Yeah, you, you can see your impact on that research as well as take part in other research through yes. our platform. Yes, that's extremely interesting. Well, I certainly hope that our listeners will participate in that and support you guys. Is that for people only who have uh, had COVID as a certainty and feel like they are suffering from long COVID as well? It is. So it's actually not a requirement to have had a PCR confirmation because we know early in the pandemic, lots of people did not get these tests. So there, okay. there are two groups of people who can take part, people who are who have long COVID and whether they've had a PCR test or not, and people who want to serve as healthy controls. So they know they've not had long COVID. And ideally, they have they know they have had COVID, but not long COVID, because we really want to understand what are the factors that differentiate people who get COVID and then go on to develop long COVID versus people who get COVID and then recover quickly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'd love to support that in every way possible. So very keen to um, engage with you going forward on that one. Look, Patrick, I'm so sorry we're running out of time, but this has been incredibly interesting. You very easily fall into the category that we're always trying to recruit for ourselves, which is people that are at the forefront of valid, important, and completely credible innovation, advancing our ability to deliver better healthcare outcomes for the well-being of people around the world. So for us, it's a pleasure, and we're proud to have had you on the show today. Thank you so much. And obviously, we wish you the very best of luck. Quite keen to keep in touch with you and certainly hope that we can bring you back perhaps with some of your colleagues and um, maybe with some of those big global pharma companies who certainly need to spend a lot more money recruiting you guys and getting you involved in their work. So, Patrick, thank you very much. What a pleasure speaking with you today. 
Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. And and I will be at the at your events in London in uh, in November, so we can have that pub uh, pub garden catch up there. If you won't be completely busy trying to run the thing. <laughs> no, in fact, I'm going to reserve a table right now. Let me make a note of that. No, joking aside, we look forward to that. Obviously, your business is partnered with Giant Health, and we appreciate that. So very keen to be showcasing you guys and the great work that you're doing at the Giant Health event, which of course is 30th of November and 1st of December in London. Again, for our listeners, that's at the Giant website, www.giant.health. Very keen to encourage everybody to come along and to hopefully to meet you, Patrick. So Patrick, thanks once again. Brilliant conversation and good luck with all of the very good work that you're doing. Thank you. And thanks for all your hard work putting together these shows. I really enjoy listening to them. It's great to be part of it. Excellent. Thank you. 